0: chapter 3 and verse 6. This will be the 24th message in the series of sermons on the whole counsel of God. And we have been dealing with the subject, the nature of God. We've covered the fact that he is infinite. We've covered the fact that he is eternal. Now this morning we want to look at another term dealing with the unchangeableness of of God, which is also called the immutability of the Lord. Chapter 3 and verse 6 of the book of Malachi. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore the sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now in dealing with this subject of the unchangeableness of the Lord, what are we talking about? What's the significance of the fact that God does not change? Does that have any relation, any bearing upon our lives as creatures? Is it just something that belongs in the pages of the books of some theologian somewhere? Or does it affect your life and mine, whether we be young people, old people, or men, women, whatever the case may be? And it certainly does. Notice that on the basis of God making this statement that I am the Lord, He says, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. The very assurance of our being made acceptable before God involves this great doctrine of his truth, and that is that he is unchangeable. Now let's look first in the Bible this morning to see if the Bible teaches the unchangeableness or the immutability of God. We would invite your attention in the same Old Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and beginning in verse 11. Let's see that if God be an infinite God, we've found that He doesn't, He is not limited by space. If He's an eternal God, He's not limited by time. Thereby, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, We read these words about our God. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor, it is the gift of God. Now verse 14, listen carefully. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God doeth it that men should fear before him. Now here is but the statement that God has a divine purpose. And that that purpose is unworking or unfulfilled in your life and mine, even this day. It is no accident, no strange matter of fate that you are where you're at today. But everything that God does, He has made beautiful in His time. And that whatever God does, the writer says it shall be forever. I notice this is the same statement that. The book of Malachi has said, I am the Lord, I change not. God is not fickle. He is not moved this way and that way, but he has purposes, and thereby those purposes are unfolding even now in time. Let's go to the book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter 11. The book of Romans, chapter 11 and verse 29. Paul would state, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The gifts that God gives and the calling which he has given us in Christ Jesus is without repentance. Repentance is a change, a change of mind. And when God gives forth his gifts... He does it because he has eternally purposed to do so, and he is immutable or unchangeable in that purpose. Now let's go to the book of James, chapter 1, and verse 17. James would say similar words, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation, neither shadow, of turning, so that the Bible would set forth in these texts that God is an unchangeable God in his person and in his purpose for the creation. Now, why must this be the case? Why must God be unchangeable? Well, you and I are changeable beings. I may have thoughts that I'm going to do one thing today and it may not come about. At two o'clock this afternoon, something may change me. And I may be one type of an individual one day, and a few days later be another type of an individual. But when we come to God, he is not a man such as you and I that changes with whichever way the wind blows. He is the eternal anchor which we have as believers which enable us to anchor on that which is unchangeable. When men would change us and forsake us and go against us, then we sure have an anchor whereby that God is unchangeable, that we can anchor onto. Now God does not have to change because He is perfect. How many of you really believe that? Do you believe that God is a perfect God, or is He something less than perfect? Let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter five, and verse forty-eight. If I was a perfect husband, then I would never need to change. And my wife always reminds me of that ever so often. Therefore, I need a continual change. But is God that type of an individual? Does God need something to make him better? Or does something happen in time which might make God less? Then perfect. In the book of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. God is absolutely perfect God. And let's say that in eternity past, that God being absolutely perfect, if now something takes place in his being, here in this particular day, which makes him change, then he would be less than perfect. And if he should become better than he was yesterday, then that would mean that yesterday he was not perfect. Therefore, God is ever-present. He is the perfect God right now. And as a result, there is no need for him to change. God does not have to become more wiser because he possesses all wisdom. God does not have to become more powerful because he possesses all power. He doesn't have to become more uh, merciful because he is all merciful. And he does not have to become more long-suffering because he is long-suffering. Therefore, God is perfect and does not need to change. And if he were not perfect, then he could not be God. Now, someone raises an objection And they would say, well, Pastor Gables, I read my Bible, and I find in the Bible that it speaks of God repenting, that is, that he does things in which he changes. Now, how could God repent and yet be unchangeable? How come the Bible speaks that God would say, it repenteth me that I ever made man, if He is an unchangeable God. Well, the Bible does speak in this terminology. Let's go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. And here we find the account in which God sends the flood upon the earth. And in verse 5 we read these words, "...and God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of his thoughts with his heart was only evil continually." And it repented the Lord that he made man the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. You say, well, Pastor Gables, that certainly sounds like that here God is sorry that he ever created man to begin with. Because doesn't it say here, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth? Doesn't that sound like that God at this particular time, that if he had it to do over, he never would have created man? Well, now my friend, when we come to terms like this in the Bible, which we've already dealt with, that is that God being attributed to having hands and feet, And also the psalmist attributes him having feathers. These terms are not to be understood as to the essence of God, but they are to be understood in humanistic terms. We are not gods. And in order for God to communicate to us, he must communicate to us as a man. And in order to do this, he must use human terminology. And our God is not to be understood as a God, which has set out to create man, and then now that he says, Oh my, here look man is so evil, I wish I had never created him. Because we read elsewhere in the Bible that the Lord Jesus Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. That is, that the very essence of man's sin was provided for before man was ever created. So we want to view this as God sitting up there in heaven, sorry, for some course of action in which that he has taken. But it is merely human words used by God to show that God has a displeasure against that particular generation, and thereby he destroyed them from off the face of the earth with the exception of Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. Now this can be illustrated like this. God... May will a change, but he does not change his will. If God changed his will, then it would mean that he was lacking in wisdom and foresight in seeing what was going to occur, and that immediately would tear down the doctrine of his unchangeableness. Why do you and I have to change? How many of you ever have to change what you planned on doing? Do you have to do that? Why do you have to do that? Isn't it because something comes up which you did not foresee was going to happen, and thereby you have to take another course of action? Is this a problem that God has? No, God possesses infinite wisdom. Nothing catches him off guard. Or else, if he does not possess that, then he isn't perfect. And thereby he isn't God. But let's illustrate, like in this particular fashion, let's suppose that I was going to go to St. Louis, Missouri. Now, St. Louis, Missouri, for practical purposes and for illustration, is east of here. And I have purposed, I have willed that I am going to travel to St. Louis, Missouri by automobile. But instead of going due east, I first of all am going to go to Springfield, which is south, and then I'm going to take another road out of Springfield and I'm going to go east. So that before I ever leave home, I have that I'm going to go south for 60 miles and then I'm going to go east for another 120 miles. Now, if you would follow me in my car, when I get to Springfield, I'm going to change my directions. But I'm not going to make up my mind to change them in Springfield. I have already set that up before I left home. Now, God wills many changes in his creation. But he never changes his will because he is the perfect, all-wise God. May we illustrate in a biblical sense. Our Lord Jesus Christ was ordained to suffer at the hands of sinners. God willed this in his eternal purpose and decree. But our Lord Jesus Christ lived for some thirty-three years, suffered, bled, and died, and was in the grave for three days and three nights, and then a change took place. He arose from the dead. Now, that was but the fulfillment of the eternal will and purpose of God. God willed that a change should take place after three days and three nights. But that change was not a change of God's will. You see, God set this forth before the foundation of the world. Let's illustrate this in the book of Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts chapter 2, Apostle Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he's speaking to those individuals which had literally nailed Christ to the cross. And he begins in verse 22 of the second chapter of Acts. Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by determinate counsel or wisdom and full eyes of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now here are these very people that Jesus healed, raised the dead, caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and they approved of him. And they would even throw out the royalty in saying, Hosanna to the king! But a change took place in their life. A few days later they would cry out, Crucify Him, Crucify Him. So there was a change which took place in the attitude of man toward Jesus Christ. But that change did not change the eternal wisdom and purpose of God. Notice that the individuals that were putting Christ on the cross were doing so freely and willingly but they were only fulfilling the eternal, immutable, unchangeable purpose of God to put his Son to death on the cross for your sins and mine. So God has many changes which are going on in his creation, but he's not changing his will every time that a change takes place. Now let's uh, use this then in illustrating. We set forth the doctrine of the unchangeableness of God, how now can this be used in your life and mine? First of all, in reproving us. What can this great doctrine set forth as reproving in our lives? First, to those that are here and are unsaved, that are sinners and never have repented and trusted Christ as your personal Savior. This doctrine reproves you Because if you hope to enter into heaven without repentance, you have a false hope. The Bible sets forth that how shall two walk together except they be what? Agreed. Your nature and God's nature are not in harmony. And either God's going to have to change or you're going to have to change before you shall enjoy an eternal relationship with him. Now, if I were a better man, which I'm not, I would put money on God in this case. Before you can enter into heaven, there must be a change take place. And it's either going to take place in God or it's going to take place in you. Either God is going to have to take back his requirements for entering into heaven, or else you're going to have to meet those requirements and repent and trust him. And if there be no change take place in you, then, and no change takes place in God, then there is nothing for an eternal God to do but to assign you to that place for those who are without Christ in this world. I invite your attention to the book of Psalms, chapter 7. Do you mean, Pastor, that God actually will do what he says he will do in relation to what he commands of sinners? I'm afraid, beloved, many have the hope today, like children do, of undisciplined parents. They have the hope that when mom and dad says, Now, Johnny, don't you do this. That when they go ahead and hear it, mom and dad will say, well, all right, I'll let you off this time. And I'm afraid there are many individuals in the human race today that have the idea that somehow God, when it comes down to the final judgment, is going to say, well, now all of you deserve punishment, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do, I'm going to let you off this time. Is that the picture that the Bible gives us of God? Is he a changeable thing? Will he say one thing and then do another? In the book of Psalms, chapter 7 and verse 11, My God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Sinner, if you're here this morning without Jesus Christ, may I say that you're under the wrath of an angry God. And I say that not according to my own ideas, but by the authority of God's word which has come down to us by his own inspired prophets. If he turn not, that is, the sinner, God, he will whet his sword, he hath bent his bow, and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He will his arrows against the persecutors. Have you ever seen a picture of an individual that has a bow that is drawn and the arrow is there and all that remains is for the fingers to release the pressure and the arrow hits its target? My friend, that's God's description of his anger with the unsaved. That is, that he is ready to destroy. And what will change him? Will he then say, oh, I'm sorry I'm so holy. I'm sorry I'm so just. And thereby put down the instruments of destruction and say, come on into my heaven. Is that what your hope is? And my friend, if that's true, then you're confronted with the fact of that same God saying, I change not. I change not. I may give my word, and because of the frailties of the flesh, may not keep it. But ladies and gentlemen, I can assure you of one thing. When God gives his word, he keeps it. And when God says that he will destroy the wicked because of their unrepentance, he will keep his word. Now then, not only does this doctrine stand to reprove the wicked, but it also can stand to correct those of us that might view prayer as a means of changing the will of God. That is, if God be immutable, then there is a great teaching abroad in our land that a human being, by prayer, can change the plan and the will of God. Now, if that could be true, then God is not immutable. That is, he is changeable. You say, well, what difference does that make? Simply this. I'm glad that God is unchangeable in his purposes because I prayed to him that I might have the wife that I have. And that was in accordance with his eternal purpose. And Brother Keith, I'm glad that's the case. Because if God was mutable, some little boy out here might just decide, well, wait a minute, I want to pray to God and he give me Mr. Gable's wife. And God might change his mind and give it to somebody else. See that? No, God is immutable. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that my prayers do not change the will of God, but that by my praying, my will is changed into his. And thereby I'm made with Jesus to pray, even when I'm sweating with such agony. Under my circumstances, great drops of blood. I can say, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thy will. And as the young lady just sang a few moments ago, a prayer is how we communicate with God. Go to him in prayer, but also be careful that we do not view that prayer as some means of changing God, whereby he takes another course of action, which would mean that he is lacking in wisdom and power or something. Now you say, well, is that actually believed? Yes, I want to read to you here. From an individual, I won't mention his name. He's well known throughout our land today. His book on prayer has been the all-time best-selling book on prayer. And here is what he says the basis of prayer is. He says, God does not always mean no when he says no. That is, he simply meant for you to keep on asking and praying and for you to refuse to be denied. Importunate in praying, insistent praying, can change even the plan of God. Unquote. You mean that the creature has more no wisdom, than whereby he can cause the eternal, perfect God who has planned all things in accordance with his wisdom and holiness in his own perfection? That that creature then could persuade that perfect wise God to depart from that plan and to take up a course of action which some little unwise creature thought up in time. Ladies and gentlemen, I said with an humble heart, I'm grateful that God Almighty has not granted every request which I have petitioned Him with in my prayer life. And if God had granted some of the things that I had asked him for, oh, what a confused state my life would be in, and what a mess it would have made of somebody else's life. No, pray, and pray, and pray. But in your prayers, make sure that you are conforming your will to God's will, not trying to impose your will upon God. God's will, so as to cause him to change. Well, now, how then, Pastor, would you answer this individual here who says that man can change the mind of God? Well, I would answer him with a quotation out of the Bible. In Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 1. I want to read to you here, I think, is as it would be how God would reply to someone who felt that man could change the mind of God. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 1, Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people, cast them out of my sight, and let them go forth. Now you read in the Bible, and you'll find that there's no two individuals which prayed more than Moses and Samuel. And yet God says to Jeremiah, if Moses and Samuel stood before me to change my mind, he said, I will not change it because my mind is made up toward this people. The rebellious Israelites cast them out of my sight. Now, I am not one that's able to move the hand of God. But if there ever was anyone in the Bible which could do it, it would be Moses and Samuel. And yet God says to Jeremiah, If these two men came before me in prayer on behalf of this people, the rebellious Israelites, he said, they could not change my mind to Lord them. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. So it should correct us then in our views that we have on prayer. Now finally, this great doctrine not only reproves the sinner who thinks he shall enter into heaven without repentance, it not only serves to correct us on our view of prayer, but it can serve to instruct us that this truth is the foundation stone of assurance for God's people. If you're here today and you have reason to believe that you've been saved by the grace of God, I want to ask you a question. How do you know that you won't be lost tomorrow? Hmm? If you don't believe that God is unchangeable, how can you have any assurance that you're going to enter to the portals of glory? There's only one thing that can give you an assurance, and that is that this eternal God is, is unchangeable in his purposes. And what he does when he saves a sinner, he also brings that sinner into the safety of heaven. He doesn't change his mind in the middle of the road. somewhere. I want to illustrate this by Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Please turn there. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. And while you're turning there, I want to read to you from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Remember now, God is the eternal anchor. He's unchangeable in his purposes. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I ask you, Christian, has God begun a good work in you? Did he call you, regenerate you, place you into union with Christ Jesus? Then according to this verse of Scripture, what does he say it's going to do? He which hath begun a good work in you will do what? Will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. There's not going to somehow something come up in God's purposes that's going to frustrate him so as that when he saves a person, then something's going to come about whereby that saint never reaches heaven. He which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now then in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 rather. After setting forth God's eternal purposes through the gospel, the apostle says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now do you see it, young people? Do you see a Christian? If God set his purpose upon you in eternity, he is for you. And who then can be against you? Then he goes on reasons like this. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Now, in some ways, it's a question to the Apostle. He says, well, now, wait a minute. I know that God has justified us, but before we ever reach heaven, there are many things which might prevent us from reaching that. All right, the Apostle takes that into consideration and he reasons like this, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation?" Shall something come up in this justified person's life whereby he goes through such terrible tribulation that that will separate him from the purpose of God? Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, and all these things were more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, beloved, that's security. But what is the basis of this security that we shall never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And it's anchored to the immutable, unchangeable purposes of God in the gospel. Now, what is your hope upon? Is your hope upon the fact that you're going to live good and you're going to hold out until the end? My friend, you didn't start off good. You're Talk about holding out. You started off bad. And most of us are the same way, even now. Is your hope that, well, maybe I'll read the Bible every day and thereby that'll, uh, that will uh, that God will receive me on that? Well, I'll be good to my neighbor. Is that your hope? Tomorrow you may run off with your neighbor's wife. You say, oh, I'd never do that. You don't know your own heart then, my friend. Every day Anger, malice, and murder comes about from individuals who people thought would never be those things. No, the only hope of assurance that we have is that the day the Lord Jesus, by the application of the Holy Spirit, reached down in our sinner's heart and began a work of regeneration in that heart, applying to him the benefits of the purchased grace of God in Jesus Christ, The day that God did that, He also said, I'm going to keep on purposing to fulfill my will for that individual until finally he shall be glorified. Assurance is based upon this great truth. God does not change. Now, I don't know about the rest of you in closing now, but if you would rather have a salvation, if you would rather have a God, that every time the wind changed, he changed in his purposes and plans, we will all embrace that form of idolatry. But if you want to have an assurance that when you stand before this unchangeable God, he will receive you, then I encourage you even now, to repent of your sins and embrace the offer of mercy that's in Jesus Christ, because all those who are included in the gospel, God says, shall be glorified. When you stand before the righteous judge, will you claim your righteousness or the eternal righteousness of the unchangeable Son of God, Jesus Christ? I don't know about you, but I know what I'm going to claim. Nothing in my hand I bring; simply to Thy cross I cling. Father, I have nothing in my hands which I can merit Your mercy, but I come before You, claiming the shed blood of Your Son on behalf of sinners. Anchor into that, rejoice in that. When the times come in which it seems like the clouds have covered the face of God. Anchor in that that behind those clouds there is an unchangeable, immutable God who has purposes of grace towards you in Christ Jesus. Let's stand.